This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as proud as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to a special edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making our truth journey a reality. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's very important interview and all of our material. Tonight, we will enter uncharted territory for Veritas. I say this because sometimes the truth hurts. And tonight, we will discuss a truth and a cover-up of massive proportions. Tonight's special guest is a former U.S. congressman who will discuss compelling evidence and previously classified information to prove that right now, there may be U.S. prisoners of war in Vietnam, Laos, and even scattered around former Soviet republics. And our government is not doing anything about it. Why? Because there is an agenda. Tonight's special guest is John Le Boudlier, and he's coming up shortly. You may notice how the tone tonight is somewhat somber, and there's plenty of reason for that. First, the subject is a somber one, but also because I would like to dedicate tonight's show to someone who was imperative to this very program. Back in late 2008, or the beginning of 2009, when I thought I was only producing this show as a hobby, 
there was a listener who made contact with me and remained a friend until recently. When I thought I couldn't continue with this show, he helped chart a course for me. In essence, he believed in me more than I believed in myself. I can honestly say, if this person hadn't appeared in my life, you would not be listening to my voice right now. His name was James Porter. Jim, whereas most of us knew him at the forum, Major Karma. He was also a Vietnam veteran. Jim and I sometimes didn't see eye to eye, and he disappeared for the past couple of years, but returned in February. He apologized and made his peace. I responded by saying that I believe in the statute of limitations, even in life matters. In his own way, he wished me well, and I did too. There was forgiveness, and now there is closure. You see, Jim disappeared after that, but we found out that he actually passed away March of this year. I was waiting for the right show to pay tribute to Jim and to publicly express my appreciation for what he had done. James Smith Porter passed away on March 16, 2013 from heart failure at the age of 58. Jim was born and raised in Texas and lived his life his way or the highway and died the same way. He will be missed and he rest in peace at last. And may he know now the truth that he was always seeking. Please join me in paying a minute of respect to Jim, Major Karma, who was also a Vietnam vet, as I said. And let's also remember our POWs left behind, but who are not forgotten. Thank you. And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. During tonight's interview, we'll discuss how thousands of American POWs were held back by the North Vietnamese. Even more shockingly, we will reveal a terrible secret that still haunts our country, that the United States government knowingly turned its back on these brave soldiers and airmen. And to discuss this enormous crime, former U.S. Congressman John Le Boudlier is coming up next, right now on Veritas. John Le Boudlier is a magna cum laude graduate of Harvard College with a master's degree in business administration from Harvard Business School. 
elected on November the 4th, 1980, to represent New York's 6th District, Le Boutelier was the youngest member of the 97th Congress. During that time, he served on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and as a member of the Special House POW and MIA Task Force, pressed for continuing investigation to determine the fate of 2,500 Americans still unaccounted for in Indochina. Since leaving Congress in 1983, Le Boutelier has run the Skyhook 2 Project, a privately funded group dedicated to recovering living American prisoners of war held against their will in Southeast Asia. Skyhook 2 has over 50,000 American supporters, and its purposes are to gather on the ground human intelligence throughout Laos and Vietnam and to educate the American public about the POW issue. Since 1983, Mr. Le Boutelier has journeyed to Southeast Asia many times, including two trips to Vietnam as the guest of the Hanoi government to discuss a solution to the POW problem. Mr. Le Boutelier is a political columnist for Newsmax.com, and his columns also appear at www.johnleboot.com. And based on thousands of pages of public and previously classified documents, we will discuss an utterly convincing case that when the American government withdrew its forces from Vietnam, it knowingly abandoned hundreds of POWs to their fate. The book is titled An Enormous Crime, the product of 25 years of research by former Congressman Bill Hendon and attorney Elizabeth A. Stewart. It exposes the reasons why these American soldiers and airmen were held back by the North Vietnamese at Operation Homecoming in 1973 and what these men have endured since. And on behalf of former Congressman Bill Hendon and attorney Elizabeth Stewart, I am privileged to welcome directly from Long Island, New York, former Congressman John LeBoutlier. Hello, Mr. LeBoutlier, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hello, Mel, and thank you for setting up this show and inviting me months ago, and we finally got this worked out. And it's a privilege to talk to you about this topic because there aren't many radio hosts in this country who will spend a minute, let alone a couple of hours, talking about, in my view, the most important issue of all. Why in the, why in the world did the American government leave living prisoners behind, who, by the way, are still alive, and what are we going to ever do to get them back? And it's a huge topic. It's symbolic of many bigger things the corruption in our government, the uncaring about our soldiers. Uh, there's a lot in here, and we've we got to talk about it. It is my honor and my privilege. And by the way, may I call you John? Yeah, uh, please do. <laughs> Thank you. And right from the start, I want to read this quote from a great man. In our country, the lie has become not just a moral category, but a pillar of the state. And that was Russian historian Alexander Solzhenitsyn. You conducted an exclusive TV interview with Solzhenitsyn back in 1981, didn't you? I did. I went up to Vermont and spent a weekend with Mr. Solzhenitsyn and his wife and one of his sons. And it was for NBC. I was a member of Congress then, and, and I was doing it for the Tom Snyder Tomorrow Show. And by the way, 
when I was with him having dinner with his wife and, and him at uh, their house on a Saturday night in October, I, my, I was already passionate by then about the POWs, which I will tell you how I got into it. But I was into it for about seven months when I go up to see him. And he, of course, been a prisoner in the Russian gulag. And I asked him, I said, do you think there are POWs still, uh, still being held in Vietnam? Without hesitation, he said, yes, there definitely are. And I'll tell you who they are. They are the toughest. They are the ones who wouldn't bend, who wouldn't cooperate, who wouldn't break. That's who they keep in their gulag, in their prison system. And there's no doubt they have them. And, and that's coming from a guy who, in effect, was a POW. He wasn't a prisoner of war, but he was a prisoner. Absolutely. He was a threat to the Soviet regime. Yep. But as you said, I'd like to know how you first got involved with this very sensitive topic. Okay, so I get elected in 1980, uh, sworn in in January 1981. Uh, and, and as I remember it, I don't know, a couple weeks after getting sworn in, you get put on these committees. And I got put on the Foreign Affairs Committee, as you mentioned. And one of the first hearings I went to of the Foreign Affairs Committee, being a freshman, you sit in the front row uh, with the senior members of Congress sitting behind you. And the hearing was scheduled to start at 10 o'clock. It was, they're always late, so I'm there at 10, but they don't start. And you just hang around for 10 or 15 minutes talking to various people. And behind me were two senior Republicans, one of them was a gentleman named Tennyson Geyer, G-U-Y-E-R, Tennyson Geyer of Ohio. And I hear them talking. I, I mean, I'm just sitting there listening. And they are talking about, uh, here's what the thing was. The guy says, boy, that was some briefing we had yesterday about the POWs in Laos. And the other guy said, yeah, that was really something. And when I heard that, I turned around and I said, Prisoners in Laos, am I allowed to have that same briefing you did? And they chuckled because, you know, I'm a brand new guy, and I was the youngest member of Congress. I was 27 years old. And these elderly guys looked at me, and they said, you're a member of Congress. You can have anything you want. You just call the Pentagon up, and you'll get the briefing. So I had a friend who was also a brand-new congressman, um, who was Billy Hendon, who wrote the book that we're going to talk about, An Enormous Crime. We did everything together for a couple of years. We went to the Pentagon now and had the briefing that these other guys had. And it was two and a half hours about in a private conference room with audiovisual capability given by an admiral with a couple of staffers. So it's just the admiral, the staffers, uh, Hendon and me in this room. On an afternoon probably late February, early March, 1981. And they played us audio tapes of radio intercepts from Laos where the Laotian military is communicating with each other about moving the American prisoners south, those terms, moving the American prisoners south. Coupled with that, they showed us aerial photography of a camp under construction January, February, March, 1981, just the exact same time we're talking. They had a series of photographs showing the progression of the building of this camp. 
they had Vietnamese radio transmissions, and you could hear the language, and they translated it for us. And they had photographs. They had all sorts of this stuff. And they did a two-and-a-half-hour briefing about all this. I'm telling you, Mel, if you or your listeners heard what I, Hendon and I heard that day, you would walk out of there unanimous in agreement there are American POWs in February 1981 held against their will in camps inside Laos. Absolutely no question about it. And the Pentagon guys that ran the briefing told us so. They knew they were there and they said it. There was no equivocation. They were definitely there. What was your reaction as a representative of the people when you heard that? And what did you do after? Well, I, I took it very seriously. Uh, Hendon and I got consumed that day when that happened. Uh, so we have not stopped since then. We've been all over the world, everywhere, trying to get something on these prisoners, trying to get them back. And I mean everywhere. Um, I've been to Vietnam numerous times, Laos, Thailand. I've talked to the Vietnamese in New York. I've talked to them in Paris. I've been to Bulgaria. I mean, you name it. Hendon, same thing. I and mean, then he's gone to Afghanistan. He's, I mean, just all sorts of stuff, trying to get a break. And what we, we, we didn't know. Now, after all, we were new. We were 27. Um, and I was 27. He was 35, I think. We were young, new congressmen, didn't really know our way around Washington. And we were Republicans. And the administration was Reagan, it was Republicans, and the administration that left the prisoners there was the Nixon administration, also Republican. So it took us quite a while to figure out something that we now know very well, that Republicans are just as much at fault in this issue, if not more so, as anybody else. That Hendon and I might be Republican, but our fellow Republicans were crooked on the POW issue. And that we didn't know that at first. It took us a while to get a handle on the thing. And um, we pushed so hard and we went to Laos and we, well, we'll get into all that as we talk, but um, our absolute devotion to the notion that we have to bring these men home, that it isn't right for the U.S. government to leave American soldiers and airmen behind when they're being held against their will. It's just, it's, it's the worst possible sin a government can do. Absolutely. And I'd like to go in chronological order, if we could, John, because there are some antecedents or critical foundations to this story. For example, wasn't it President Nixon who signed a secret letter? Yep. Right? Yep delivered yep. by Henry Kissinger, offering the North Vietnamese $5 billion in reparations. And that letter was never made public. And also, there is a Cuban link here. Right. And the North Vietnamese learned a huge lesson from Fidel Castro and what they did with that lesson. Can you take it from there? I certainly can. We had the uh, Bay of Pigs just after Nick, uh, excuse me, after President Kennedy took over. And it was a mission, uh, looking back on it, it was a real screw-up. But what the CIA and President Kennedy and the U.S. military tried to do was insert into Cuba a 
Cuban exiles who'd come to America, who'd sort of been rounded up voluntarily by the CIA, trained to be a guerrilla fighting force and put them into Cuba to try to take down Castro. And it was a fiasco. The Bay of Pigs equates to a total fiasco. They landed. There was no air cover from the United States. Castro was basically his troops were waiting for these poor guys, and they got slaughtered or captured. And the ones who were captured were locked up, and it was made a big deal out of by Castro, who by then had become a out-and-out communist and declared himself as such. And while he has these men there um, locked up in horrible conditions in Cuba, uh, the United States government is trying to figure out how to get these guys back, and they don't know what to do. And they finally do a project, and they come up with money, basically, to pay Castro, track, give him tractors and all sorts of stuff, and probably a lot of money under the table, too, to get these people freed. And they ultimately did. But in the process of that, they had a conference in Havana of the non-aligned countries, which meant the anti-American countries like Vietnam, uh, North Korea, you know, all the outlaw countries back at that time and still today, by the way. And they hooked up with Castro in, in Havana and they witnessed, the Vietnamese are there in Havana when they see the United States government give Castro a lot of money and in goods and probably cash too, but the tractors was called tractors for peace, I think. And it, it was a big project to pay them to let these men go. And they did. The men were let go. They went to Miami. They, they were taken um, to the Orange Bowl, the football stadium at the time, and had a big, big rally for them. And President Kennedy went down to the rally. And, you know, it was a successful trade. American money, tractors, equipment for an agricultural country like Cuba in return for these Cuban prisoners who were really, you know, pro-American so-called freedom fighters and all that. And that is a predicate that will come back in the Vietnam War because when American prisoners start getting captured in Vietnam and Laos, most of them, not all of them, but for a while a lot of them were shot down out of airplanes and helicopters, captured on the ground, and taken pretty good care of because the Vietnamese saw the value of these people from that Cuban example, that they could ultimately, if they kept these guys, they could trade them for American money, equipment, and so forth. And that was their motivation in capturing these prisoners, was to trade them back to the United States. So the Orange Bowl event happened on December the 29th, 1962. And even the First Lady, Jacqueline Kennedy, gave a full speech in Spanish. Damage control, in my opinion. But before that, even Robert Kennedy, JFK's brother and attorney general, made personal pleas for contributions from pharmaceutical companies and baby food manufacturers. And he told the CEOs of these companies that his brother had made a mistake and needed to make it right. And that's why he needed their assistance. Castro eventually settled on $53 million of baby food and medicine 
in exchange for the prisoners. I'm told there were hundreds of freight trains from all over the United States going down to Florida where the supplies were being shipped out to Cuba. But at the end of the day, John, Castro had taught Hanoi how to capture U.S. POWs to squeeze money from the U.S. Castro gave them the big idea, the POW ransom plan to Vietnam. Isn't this what it's all about? That is exactly right. There's no question, because in the end, and we can get through it and come back if you want, but at the end of the Vietnam War now, we've gone through, Kennedy's been assassinated, Johnson's president, he runs the Vietnam War, he doesn't run again, Nixon gets elected, Nixon gets reelected, and then he makes the deal to end the war, and you referred to it a minute ago, this letter. Now, here's what happened. They do the Paris Peace Agreement, uh, in January 1973, to end American involvement in the Vietnam War, to preserve South Vietnam as a separate independent country, and obviously North Vietnam. And they're all part of the agreement. And of course, the agreement fell apart. But part of that agreement that, the, that Nixon had insisted upon was the issue of POWs. What are we going to do about the POWs that you've captured? We Americans want them all back. And so there were two clauses in the Paris Peace Agreement. One of them was 8B, B as in boy, 8B, which, in which uh, the Vietnamese promised to gather up all the POWs in Southeast Asia and return them to the United States. That would be every prisoner in the Vietnam's north and south that they had, and Laos and Cambodia. And in return, it says the United States will contribute to healing the wounds of war. Doesn't say what, but healing the wounds of war. Unbeknownst to the public, Mel, for years, four days after that public signing of the Paris Peace Agreement by Secretary William Rogers in Paris in a conference room on Avenue Clay Bear. Four days later, uh, on February 1st, 1973, President Nixon writes a letter on his presidential stationery to the premier of North Vietnam, Pham Van Dong. And in the letter, and I have the letter here, I don't have it in front of me at this minute, but I've had it for 30 years, a copy of it. In the letter, Mel, he says, Nixon says, that the United States, as part of that Paris Peace Agreement, will, over a five-year period, give North Vietnam up to $4.75 billion, with a B, $4.75 billion, in reconstruction aid and funds to help heal the wounds of war. So that that um, letter was the meat that was on the bones of the Paris Peace Agreement where they said, we'll get all the POWs, we'll gather them all up and give them back, and you, America, you will heal our wounds of war. And that means you'll pay to heal our wounds of war. And Nixon went along with that and wrote that letter Spelling out, if you do everything, you're getting $4.75 billion. Which today doesn't sound like as much money, 
because we're handing out money to bankrupt banks and companies and all, uh, sometimes $20 billion in a, in a in a go. But you go back to 1973, that's a lot of money today. So $4.75 billion is equated to like $15 billion now. And that letter was sent to Hanoi secretly. The public never knew about it. The, the Senate and the House never knew about it. And the Vietnamese got that letter, and they then turn over half the POWs. They turn over, I think it's 593 or four prisoners were let go uh, in several segments of prisoners. John McCain was in the first group that was let go. The older guys that were held there longer, they went first. It was a riveting sight. I don't know, Mel, I don't think you remember this. You weren't probably old enough. I was a child. Were you? Too young to remember. Yeah. Well, I, I was in, a freshman in college. You know, it was 1973. And I remember I stayed up at night to watch the uh, planes from Hanoi landing at Clark Airfield in the Philippines with uh, the groups of POWs. And they would get off the plane and they were, it was so happy. It was fantastic. You know, it was a just tremendous thing to see. And it, it was a unifying time for America. There's awful wars coming to an end, and these guys are coming back. And we haven't seen these men in four, five, six, seven years, and here they are. And it was really a happy time. It was also the going to be the end of the war. Little did we know that the Vietnamese didn't let all the prisoners go. They aren't dumb. They kept half the prisoners behind as an insurance policy to make sure that Nixon paid the money that he promised in that letter. They didn't trust us. They weren't going to give us all the prisoners. They gave us half of them. They gave us about 600, and the other half was another 600. Therefore, there were about 1,200 POWs still alive in Vietnam. And I can understand why North Vietnam would do that. They wanted us to heal the wounds of that war, and they wanted to guarantee that they would get their part before they would release the rest of the POWs. But most people want to believe that after the war ended, that all our personnel made it out and returned home in the early 1970s. But since you mentioned John McCain, no. being that he was a POW for so long, you would think that if there is someone who sees this matter as very plausible, the fact that there may be POWs in that area of the world right now, it would be John McCain. Instead, he dismisses anyone who raises these matters as conspiracy theory. Why? Well, you know, I don't really know why he does it. I have to say, in all my time in politics, John McCain is the single uh, most un favorable person I've ever met. I, I, he is a terrible human being. I have to tell you, he's awful. What has made him bulletproof to attacks is, is the fact that he was a POW. And people feel so sorry for these former prisoners of war. It must have been so hard, and you're such a hero to have survived it, blah, blah. And they never attacked these guys. And McCain has ridden that, you know, he's hidden behind that POW banner all this time. And I don't really think that's right. I think the POW thing is one part of his life, but his life as a congressman and now a U.S. senator 
makes him open to criticism. And he, his behavior on the POW thing, Mel, has been awful. I mean, that guy has hurt this issue more than anybody else precisely because he was a POW. Had he come out and said what the committee he served on said, which is we did leave prisoners behind in Vietnam in 1973. If McCain ever came out and said that, it would blow this issue wide open. You know, I mean, guys, it's a senator, and yet you would think, won't say it. Yeah. But again, John, you would think that McCain, being a U.S. senator, being that he was a, a POW for five and a half years, his father, John McCain Sr., was commander-in-chief of Pacific Command and, and commander of all U.S. forces in the Vietnam theater from 68 to 72. Then his son will be the first person I will be thinking of when it comes to exercising his political influence in order to bring these POWs home. But due to his actions, or lack thereof, I can only reach one conclusion, John. And I know this will seem as a serious accusation, and he's my senator here in Arizona, but if he dismisses all of this and even calls the satellite images as natural formations or shadows, then, in my honest opinion, John, he must be part of the cover-up. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, it could be just straight covering up. He's carrying water for the Pentagon who doesn't want him, or doesn't want the POWs to come home, and they want him to be the lead guy. The, the, there's also a lead woman, uh, the head of the National League of Families, Ann Griffiths. She's the sister of an MIA, and they've used her for years. You put her out there um, as sort of the symbol of the POW issue, and she says they're none there. Well, you know, people buy it. If they say they're not there, they believe it. And they have heard us. McCain and, and Ann Griffiths have heard us. That is one of the reasons Hendon, when he wrote An Enormous Crime, got Beth Stewart, who was um, his co-author, but he originally signed her up to write the book with him because her father was shot down and captured alive in Laos. And the U.S. government won't give her any info about her father. And she's done a lot of research in the archives and military records and all. And she, too, came to the conclusion that her father had been taken against his will, probably, to Russia and locked up in a prison facility there. This is just incredible. So you estimate that 50% of the POWs were released. The question is, the Vietnam War lasted from August 64 to, what, January 73. 58,000 Americans killed and more than 315,000 wounded. This was a war of attrition, was it not? Yeah, it really was a war of attrition. And, and America, after a while, just couldn't take it anymore. You know, and I, I don't think we're built for long wars anymore. We, we want the thing in and out, quick and easy. Um, the idea of fighting, well, so what's 64? So it's nine years. And we didn't actually withdraw the troops till 75. We took the combat troops out in 73. But let's just round it off. Approximately 10-year-long war. That's not going to go anymore. This country's not going to stand for it. But then, of course, we have the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, that seemed to be continuing 
but they weren't forever. But excuse me, no. Yeah. The thing is, Iraq and Iraq and Afghanistan are not large like Vietnam was. We had five hundred plus thousand men at a time over there. That is true. We didn't do that in Iraq. We should have. We didn't, and we didn't do it in Afghanistan. Of course, the equipment changed. The bombing. You know, things are different. But the Vietnam thing, to me, is a searing wound on this country. Absolutely. Very different. Right now, we have a volunteer force. Even 50% of the personnel right now are private contractors, I suspect, because we don't have a draft, which they had back then. And not to undermine any losses, but we've had about 4,500 killed in Iraq versus 58,000 in Vietnam. But on the cover of the book, please allow me to read this. A U.S. spy satellite passing over Samnewa province in Laos captured this image of the letters USA etched 12 feet tall into a rice paddy with a highly classified Vietnam War era U.S. Air Force Navy escape and evasion code written immediately beneath them. This satellite photograph was taken in 1988. 15 years after Operation Homecoming. Now, Henry Kissinger said in reaction to what I just read, quote, if that document is authentic, and it is hard to imagine who would have forged it, for what purpose that I think an enormous crime has been committed, unquote. Kissinger's reaction, John, seems to me very hypocritical, a hypocritical statement. If there's someone who knows if these POWs were or are still alive, it is him. What's your take on this? Well, I agree with you. Now, that's obviously that quote uh, Hendon used for the title of the book. And we thought it was a good irony uh, because we think Kissinger is the numero uno criminal in this issue. Because he negotiated the Paris Peace Agreement for four years, especially for the last year when it was signed, 72. And um, he knew there were prisoners there. There's no question he knew. And he knowingly did a deal that did not require and mandate that those men come home. And then when they didn't come home, he also knew that. Uh, we haven't gotten to that yet, but I, I could get to it quickly. The, the, the McCain and those guys come home, like I said, at night, Clark Air Force Base, it's on TV. We didn't have cable and satellite like we do now, but you could get TV sent from Singapore, and it was pretty good, or from um, the Philippines in this case. And so we got to see the prisoners. And then there were three more tranches or groups of prisoners who came out and came home. And it was a big deal, and the wives running out on the tarmac and hugging their husbands. Big deal. So it was great. Um, then... When every prisoner's home and they're being debriefed by the military, extensive, every one of them was extensively debriefed about everything that went on in prison. Who else did you see there? Who tortured you? What happened? I mean, everything. It became apparent during those debriefings that not all the prisoners came home and the prisoners who did come home didn't know the guys that were left behind because they'd been separated the minute they got captured. So you had group A, who the Vietnamese are going to let go at the end of the war. And you got group B, who they're not going to let go, who they're going to hold and trade 
for prisoners down the road. And that, that alone has been a hard thing for many people to grasp. And as if this 1988 spy satellite image wasn't enough, wasn't there another image from 1992? Yeah. Right? Showing the same, more people displaying their escape and evasion uh, Code. codes. Why wouldn't every representative in Washington go up in arms to demand that we look into it further? But of course, we probably... The president would appoint a commission, a La Warren commission that takes us nowhere. And we had the military might, even back then, we could have done more to bring them home. Well, of course we could have done more. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, the whole thing, uh, and I, I got to keep my chronology going for you and your listeners about the letter, too, because the letter that we referred to a minute ago, the Nixon letter to Fan Van Dong was secret. Now, the prisoners come home, McCain, Denton, they were pretty famous figures at the time, and they're coming home February, March of 73. And when they get back to the States, they, their wives and kids and all are happy. And pretty quickly, Mel, the stories start coming out about the treatment that these prisoners had in prison camp, which, you know, was rough. They were tortured badly. They were the Vietnamese had a particular thing they did during interrogations where they put your arms behind you and wrapped a rope around them and wrapped it all the way up past the elbows really tight, and it popped the shoulders out of your joints. You can imagine what that felt like. And that was extremely painful. They were trying to break these guys to get military information out of them and to get propaganda statements out of them. So now the prisoners come home and they tell this story of torture and all. And uh, the Congress reads these stories and they start saying publicly, I'm not going to vote for any aid for Vietnam. I'm not, I'm not voting for money for Vietnam. Are you kidding? They tortured our heroic prisoners. Why would I give them money? Well, the Nixon White House sees this and goes, oh, my God. Uh we've got to stop this talk from Congress because if Congress keeps talking that they won't give aid, Hanoi will see it and they'll say in Hanoi, well, wait a second, you, you promised us 4.75 billion. Uh, what's the deal? You know, why are you reneging on this thing? And of course what they're worried about and what Nixon's worried about is that they renege on the deal in Hanoi uh, or we renege on our part of the deal for Hanoi, they will up in Hanoi uh, renege on the promise to gather up all the POWs and get, give them back. And that was a turning point because we never voted. The Congress in 73 never voted yes or no, give the money to Vietnam. Never did it. They also, Mel, never knew about that February 1st letter. The Nixon White House never showed Congress the letter promising the $4.75 billion. So, Is that and, legal, John? Well, I'm not a lawyer. I think it is. I mean, I think a, a, a president can write letters and they're not public and um, Congress yeah, but no the funding. recourse. Well, he promised the funding. He never got the funding because he, he actually, they never submitted a bill 
to be voted on in Congress um, to authorize the payment. They just dropped the whole thing. Now, remember something. We're talking February, March, April, May, 1973. What else was going on at that time period? Watergate. Watergate, yeah. And that Watergate was consuming the Nixon White House. Uh, and I think they, they wanted to get Vietnam off the front burner. It was nothing but a negative. So at some point, as I recall, in early April 73, this guy over in the Pentagon who was sort of overseeing the whole POW issue named um, Roger Shields, he announces there are no POWs left. They're all accounted for. Everybody's dead. There's no one else being held there. The Secretary of Defense, uh, uh, Clements, from Texas, who went on to be the governor of Clements, Bill Clements, he said in a press conference, there are no more prisoners. In other words, they went from the war has ended, we're going to pay to get the prisoners back. They went from that in January, and by April, they've seen they can't get anywhere. Congress won't vote the money. So they're just going to say all the prisoners are dead. And they do. They say they're all dead. And by the way, here we are in 2013. And because of that, we still, as a government, act like they're dead. Even though we have known all along, Mel, that those prisoners are there. Our government has known it. Now, you've got that book. You're, you keep referring, thank you, to the enormous crime. But on the cover of that book is uh, an escape and evasion code drawn in a uh, on the ground in Laos. And it is a USA, 18 feet high USA. And underneath it is the rest of the escape and evasion code. It's a, called a walking K. And it's the letter K with little straight line feet on the legs and the arms sort of of the walking K. And that was a unique escape and evasion code belonging to one prisoner. Every pilot and airman who went into the Vietnam War was given a unique, like you get a PIN number from the bank. They were given a unique either number or code that was like Mel Fabregas would get XY37B. That's your thing, Mel. XY37B. And if, if they see that, they know you are alive. It means I, Mel Fabregas, am alive. Come get me. And we here we are. The war is ending in 73. And in 1992... U.S. spy satellites are finding new, fresh escape and evasion codes put on the ground in rice paddies on rooftops in Vietnam and Laos. Twenty years after the end of the war, some pilots are still there trying to communicate with overhead aircraft. And and that escape and evasion code basically means, I'm alive, come get me. The very first guest we had on this show, John, was a former U.S. Air Force pilot, a major, who flew dozens of sorties in Korea and Vietnam. And he became so disillusioned during the Vietnam War when he found out he was not able to hit certain targets. He was not authorized, even though he knew they were 
genuine bona fide hostile targets, almost as if the commanders were prolonging that war on purpose. He was never the same after that. Why was this war fought so differently from others? There weren't any clear or defined goals. Yeah, well, it's the second war, Korea being the first, that America got into without um, a clear definition of what a victory is and how we're going to get there. I mean, World War II, once we got into that, uh, the day of Pearl Harbor, there was no question that the the goal was very simple. We had to crush the Japanese and German governments. I mean, that, that was all. that's all it was about. Uh, that was never the case. You never heard anybody in America say during Vietnam, we must crush the North Vietnamese government. You, know, you never heard it. You, and you never heard it in in other conflicts we've had where we go halfway instead of going all the way. It's become a sort of a disease in our military and our and our diplomacy is that we're afraid to go all the way. Well, in Vietnam, they didn't go all the way. They went halfway. And, and the result is we've had this lasting problem that we're talking about the POWs. And frankly, until that thing gets solved, I'm not sure this country will be quite right. It's a terrible sin to leave men behind and lie about it. And it's gone on now for 40 years almost, or 36 years. That's bad enough, but politically, both parties have done it. They've both been in on it. it. It's part of the symbolic aspect of this issue where if the U.S. government will leave behind 600 soldiers, what will they do to you? You know? Indeed. And as you say, almost 40 years later, why would they continue to hold them? The question keeps popping in my mind. Could it be that we have told them, our government, that is, that there would be repercussions if the truth came out? after this long. But in December 2001, the United States granted Vietnam most favored nation status. Why not Cuba? Well, we're at it since we didn't lose that many people there and it's only 90 miles away from us and they're both communist countries. Why are we giving Vietnam most favored nation status if they're keeping our POWs there? Unless it was a way to repay them, to settle the issue and to keep them quiet. Okay, well, okay. And it's been... I, I, I want you to remember that, that I, we're going to get to that in a minute. It's very important. That's 2001. But we got to go back for a minute in order to answer that. we got to go backwards again, back to the letter from Nixon to Fan Van Dong, Feb 1, 1973. Okay, secret letter. Now, Watergate comes and goes. President Ford becomes president. We are now in 1976, and so the war has been over. Our, the American involvement in the war has been over for a couple of years, and there are reports coming out. Remember, there was these boat people leaving in droves when Saigon fell. Uh, the North Vietnamese invaded South Vietnam. The Paris Peace Agreement fell apart, and the war was really finally over, and America's evacuating off the embassy roof and all that. And thousands, tens of thousands of Vietnamese who were loyal to America and, and South Vietnamese loyalists, they knew they were going to get slaughtered if they stayed in Vietnam. The communists would come and wipe them out. So they got in little boats, big boats, rafts, you name it, and they 
left Vietnam, floated out in the ocean, a lot of them drowned, a lot of them made it to the Philippines, to Thailand, Singapore. They go in refugee camps, and they, by the way, most of them ended up coming over here or Australia and all, and they've done very well. But when they first came out, they started telling stories about seeing American POWs in prison camps in Vietnam. And this went on 74, 75, 76. And it became such a big story that uh, a committee was formed in the House of Representatives headed up by a really good Democrat guy named Sonny Montgomery from Mississippi, ex-military guy, big congressman. And, and what I'm going to tell you is going to blow your mind. He, he holds hearings to try to get to the bottom of this thing. Are there still prisoners over there or not? So he has hearings in Washington, and he hears a rumor about the letter, right? And he's not dumb. He says, man, if there's this letter, if we promised them money and then we reneged on the promise, that makes sense about why there would still be prisoners in Vietnam. So what he does is he, he gets the National Security Advisor, a fellow at the time, this is President Ford's National Security Advisor, someone you've heard of, Mel, Brent Scowcroft. He comes Absolutely. up, yeah, because he was the National Security Advisor many years later to the first President Bush, who, uh, by the way, was head of the CIA in 76 when Ford is president, when Vietnam is ending, George H.W. Bush is the head of the CIA. And Brent Scowcroft's national security advisor, and he goes up to the Hill, and they ask him, we heard there's a letter where Nixon promised $4.75 billion. We'd like to see it. Well, what letter, says Scowcroft? I don't know what you're talking about. I never heard of such a letter. Keeping in mind, Scowcroft was Henry Kissinger's deputy when Nixon was president. But anyway, he says there's no letter. Never heard of it. That's that. Sonny Montgomery and his committee, as part of their investigation, go over to Hanoi. They want to talk to the Vietnamese government because they're trying to find out what's the truth on this POW thing. And they get over there, and they have a meeting with the Vietnamese senior leaders. And you're going to love this, Mel. In the meeting, the Vietnamese open up a file folder and hand Congressman Sonny Montgomery the Nixon letter that Nixon had sent to Fan Van Dong. He looks at this thing and he says, I don't believe this. I was just told two weeks ago in Washington, this letter didn't exist. I come all the hell the way over here to Hanoi and they show me the letter. So that when their committee's finished in Asia, they fly back to Washington. They call up Scowcroft. They demand he come up to the hill again. He comes over there. They said, now we asked you about that letter. You said there was no letter. We get to Vietnam, and the Vietnamese gave us the letter. So now what do you have to say for yourself? And Brent Scowcroft said, oh, that letter. I didn't know you were talking about that letter. That doesn't really mean we're going to give them any money. It just was talking about the possibility of giving them money. In other words, Mel, that guy had been caught up on a lie. He was caught in a lie. It's an ongoing lie. It was a lie back 
when they first gave the letter and they couldn't give the money, they started lying. And you ask why the Vietnamese kept the prisoners all these years. They have tried under every president since Nixon and Ford, Carter, Reagan, they tried every time to get the money. They've had secret back-channel communications to see if each new administration would honor that agreement. And none of them would. None of them knew about it. The old, you know, the more the years have gone on, it's sort of fallen away and fallen through the cracks. And then came uh, 1991, two, and three, when more evidence came up that there's still prisoners there, like the picture on the front of the book that we just described of the escape and evasion code. Uh, they had a, there was so many reports that there's still prisoners alive over there. 20 years now after the war, that the Senate creates a Senate Select Committee to look at the whole thing all over again. Pictures, interviews, the letter of Fan Van Dong, what really happened, the money, blah, 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 blah. That committee was headed up by John Kerry, the Democratic chairman of the committee. The vice chairman was a good guy named Bob Smith, but the real force on the Republican side was John McCain. And John McCain and John Kerry made it very clear that they had an agenda for this committee, which was to have normalized relations with Vietnam, and that the issue that was preventing that was the POW issue. Therefore, it had to be discredited and ended by that committee in order to do what you described, normalize relations with Vietnam, give them World Trade Organization trading rights and the tariffs and all that stuff. And that's what happened. They, they used that committee to say there are no prisoners, there are no prisoners, there's no evidence of prisoners, so forget that issue, let's take it off the table, there's nothing preventing us now from being friendly with the Vietnamese. And that's what's happened. And we're sitting here today, I mean, these prisoners are putting these escape and evasion codes out there and the U.S. government, including big shots today in the government, I'll give you a good example, uh, two examples, they sit there and lie about it. The, the one on the front of the book, USAK, that's an escape and evasion code uh, referring to a particular POW, as I mentioned. When John McCain was asked, and when he wrote about it in one of his memoirs, his answer was, oh, a 12-year-old Laotian boy drew that in the dirt outside his house. Now, Mel, the USA is 18 feet high and I think 35 feet long. How many 12-year-old boys are going to go out and be clever enough, even if they wanted to, why would they, draw a USA and a How would they know about the walking K symbol? 17 feet high, they're going to draw all that knowing that a satellite is going to come overhead and see it. Why would they do it? Why, 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 why would some kid draw that thing? I mean, it's the most absurd thing. Then, then there have been other ones where the guys put these elaborate letters and numbers down that are their escape and evasion code. And when the U.S. government during that Senate committee was asked, including this guy, James Clapper, who was the head of the DIA at the time, the Defense Intelligence Agency. 
This guy says, oh, yeah, um, it's naturally occurring vegetation. Now, Really? Could, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Naturally occurring vegetation draws letters and numbers that correlate to one particular prisoner. Another government explanation of a different case of the same thing was a shadows. It was shadows created these symbols. I mean, it's all the same. The government lies about everything, including about these symbols, about the prisoners. And why do they lie? Because they want to get rid of the issue so they can move ahead with their current agenda, which is to have good relations with the Vietnamese as a way to tweak the Chinese, a counterpoint to China. And by the way, I don't mind any of that. I don't mind having trade with Vietnam. I don't mind being friends with Vietnam. That, to me, is not the issue. The issue is the U.S. government should have, in order to have friendship with Vietnam, they should have said to Vietnam, listen, we got to have these prisoners back. What's it going to take? we got to pay the money. We promised it. We'll pay it. Whatever we got to do, let's get the men back. My problem is, Mel, the U.S. government does not want to get the men back. They don't want to do it. Their behavior is clear. They'd rather leave them there and cover it up. And your listeners and you are going to ask why. And I guess the answer has to be a lie begun during the end of the war and, the, and, and Watergate, like we talked about. A lie. The lie of April 73. Quote, they're, all the prisoners are dead. There are none there anymore. That lie kept going. And more and more people were forced or wanted to sign on to that lie and, and uttered it. And that's why I brought up the fact that George H.W. George Bush was head of the CIA. Uh, he went along with the lie about the POWs in 76 when he's head of the CIA. Brent Scowcroft, you mentioned Kissinger. All of them were part of the lie, and they kept the lie going. And it went on and on. And it spread to other administrations, other people, and then in the Carter and then the Reagan administrations. And after a while, a lie like that becomes bigger and bigger and bigger as you go on. And more and more big shots careers could be ruined if the lie is exposed. And so the institutions of our government choose not to solve the problem, but just to kick the can down the road keep lying and hope that the prisoners die eventually wherever they are. And then the issue's gone. That's what the plan is. You know, just keep the cover up going. I have to tell you back in 2001, when the U S granted a Vietnam most favorite nation status, a few things came to mind, but it wasn't until I read this book that I put two and two together. Back then I said, wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. We're dealing with a communist country where we lost over 50,000 of our soldiers, yet we're giving them most favorite nation status. And yes, we've done the same with our former enemies, Japan and Germany, to mention a few. But most favorite nation status to Vietnam, to me, is a way to say to Vietnam, look, we know you have our POWs, but the longer we wait to tell the lie, it's going to be worse for every administration. This is bipartisan now, covering what, eight administrations? Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, and now Obama. Yep. So it's a way to say to them, look, keep it quiet. 
will give you most favored nation status. That's going to be the way for us to repay you and to settle this matter once and for all. Do you agree with this? Yes, there's no doubt. The governments in Hanoi and Washington, and I'd like to expand our conversation to some other areas that are part of it later on, like I'd like to talk about Laos. I'd like to talk about the Soviet Union, but we've got time for that. But but yes, on the most favored nation. But we have to take a we have to take a quick break. But go ahead, finish your statement. We'll take a break okay. and we'll come back. Yeah, there's no doubt the governments uh, have too much to lose on both sides. The Vietnamese now, 35 years later, 40 years later, uh, they they could get away with it. They could suddenly find the prisoners next door in Laos and send them home to America by saying, you know, we tried to give them back. We offered them to the United States, and it's the American government that didn't want them. And so probably to prevent that awful thing, we keep giving Hanoi things to keep them quiet. And I have to thank one of our listeners, Sandy Frazier, who compelled me to look into this matter and who connected you and I a few months ago. So thank you, Sandy Frazier, for making this interview happen. And folks, this is one of the biggest stories in our lifetime. And you won't get this in the mainstream media, or as I call it, the Ministry of Propaganda. And I'm so glad to have people like former Congressman John Laboutlier here, uh, former Congressman Bill Hendon and attorney Elizabeth Stewart for writing this book and for continuing to shine a light on this very important story. Because right now, if these POWs are still alive, and there's no reason to say that they're not. They would be between 60, 65, 70 years old. Yep. If there's hope to bring them back, we need to do what we can. And I'm glad to have you here. How do people buy the book, An Enormous Crime? An Enormous Crime. I didn't write it, but I helped Billy. We, we were partners and still are. Uh, we're great friends and totally devoted to the issue. And he wrote it with... Uh, as you said, a lawyer, Elizabeth Stewart. But yeah, she's a lawyer professionally, but her father was shot down in Laos and never found again. And so from a family's point of view, which we haven't even gotten into that, you and me yet, what the families have gone through in this issue is unbelievable. Imagine if it's your husband who was shot down and you're never sure if he's dead or alive and so what do you do? Do you just wait forever? Do you sit, figure he's dead so I'll get remarried? I mean, I, you know, and I know a lot of them. I've become friends with a lot of them. And I'm telling you, they're all, you know, military wives. They believe in the government. They believe in the military. They've been lied to like crazy. And yet it's that they have this faith that the government will do the right thing. And I'm telling you, the government won't do the right thing. The government will almost always do the wrong thing. And folks, we have to take our one and only intermission. But so that you know, we're speaking with someone who was a former U.S. congressman who was briefed at the Pentagon with another congressman by an admiral and his staff in the early 80s. And they were told that POWs still exist and nothing has been done to bring them back. This is beyond doing nothing. This is worse. It is a cover-up by our own government. It is indeed... An enormous crime. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with my special guest, former U.S. Congressman John LeBoutlier, and we have so much more to discuss, including why George Bush Sr. 
lost his re-election in 1988. And where else in Southeast Asia might our POWs be? All of this and much more when we come back. And to all Vietnam vets who felt you didn't matter when you returned home, you matter to me, especially those of you who stayed behind and are still hoping to one day come home. This show is for you. This is Mel Fambergas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this special edition of Veritas. To listen to segment two, head over to our website, veritasradio.com, and subscribe. This is the only way we are able to produce shows like tonight's that you will never hear in the mainstream media. I also want to dedicate tonight's music to our lost but not forgotten friend, James Porter, Major Karma, for helping create this show that would not be here without you. I'm gone fishing
What you think is expected of you But you'll never be free May as well go fishing 